Hey, everybody. <laughs> My name is Kathy, and I'm recovering uh, one day at a time in the Worldwide Al-Anon Family Group. Um, it, thank you. First of all, thank you for your kind invitation to come and speak um, at your 52nd, wow, your 52nd convention slash conference slash roundup. That's amazing. And, and I say that because um, in 2015, um, it was Cincinnati's turn, if, for those of you that aren't, aren't from the area, we're just right across the river. Really, when I, Rick left, uh, what, 11 o'clock this morning, and Stephanie left at 3 a.m., and I really just left home 20 minutes ago. It just, <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, so it was Cincinnati's turn to host the Al-Anon Ohio Convention for 2015, and some rep came to our, you know, my home group and said, well, doesn't look like, you know, we're going to have a 2015 Ohio convention because nobody's willing to chair it. So I thought, that because I'm pretty sure my home group could run the United Nations. <laughs> so I went home, called my friend Sue, and I said, Sue, if you'll chair it, I'll co-chair it. I mean, how hard can it be to put on a state convention? Well, as it turns out, and you would know this better than anybody, Karen and Allison and all of you, it just is a lot of work. And it really takes so much cooperation and commitment and people who actually do what they say they're going to do and show up. So congratulations and thank you for all this hard work that I know has preceded um, tonight, this opening tonight. Thank you very much. I'd also like to thank Lisa. God love her. She called me a few weeks ago, and as it turned out, I could not meet with her before tonight because for a number of reasons. But one is that I um, have started going away once a year with uh, on a hike with two of my friends that I went to grade school with. So I've known them for over 60 years, and I say that because... Um, we walk. We just came back from an 80-mile walk. And no, it really. Well, no, it really. Yes. Oh, it's right. It damn near killed me. I mean, it was a challenge. I said to my mother, who is a hundred, I said, "No, there's nothing wrong with her whatsoever. She has a hammer toe. That's the only thing that's wrong with my mother." I had her for dinner last night. She said. I got to go to a podiatrist. This damn hammer toe is killing me. And then I took her to Kroger, and she gets on a cart, you know, and, and then she's off. And I feel like I'm tracking down one of my little kids. You know, I'm going from aisle to aisle. Like, where did she go? I mean, she just moves pretty quickly. But I'm telling you that to say this. I said to my mother, you know, Mom, I have a lot of women friends, but there aren't many that I could walk 80 miles with, and we just get along so seamlessly. And it's because we know one another well and have known each other for so long. So we can walk for miles and not speak. Nobody complains. Nobody's a know-it-all. Nobody's boss. Friendship. And as I said to Mom, not many people do that. 
which is true. But I'm only saying that because what's nice about speaking in a fairly local place where I'm, I can see people that I go to meetings with and have gone to meetings with, you don't have to worry about being, you know, you don't have to worry about coming across as an idiot because you're with people who already know you are an idiot. So it's just, it just takes all the pressure off. So, um, <clears throat> Good to be here. Um, you know, as Lisa said, I have been coming around for a long time, and the reason that I continue to show up is because Al-Anon works for me. It just works. I can't imagine. You know, I hear people say all the time, oh, I'm so grateful. For no, I'm not. But I am grateful for the solution. That's what I love. I love the solution that is offered to each and every one of us if, you know, if we're willing, uh, if we're willing to say yes to, to what's, uh, to the invasion. So I, uh, very quickly, um, my background, I grew up, as Lisa said, born and raised in Cincinnati, and did not come out of an alcoholic home, came from a home, a mother and father who were devoted to one another. And I grew up with a great deal of um, I grew up trusting happiness. I grew up with, um, you know, a bit of, you know, uh, freedom. You know, they would give us some choices. However, having said that, I grew up at a time, and I was, Lisa and I were talking about this at dinner. Sometimes I'll go to Al-Anon meetings and I'll hear, I grew up in an alcoholic home and we weren't allowed to feel our feelings. Well, we really weren't allowed to feel our feelings either. <laughs> I mean, nobody really cared when I was a kid how I was feeling about something. Nobody ever said to me, well, Kathy, how do you feel about that? That was just a question that was never asked. And I think, I'm not a sociologist, but I, I believe it has to do with being raised by parents who had just come out of a world war, who had experienced depression as teenagers and young adults. And so for them, it was just enough to try to provide a roof over our head, you know, roof over our heads, food on the table, to have a job, and nobody really cared about how you were feeling. <laughs> there was that, you know, children should be seen and not heard. There was no question. I never doubted that I was loved. I never doubted that I was loved. But I do remember in my home what was important, um, and I don't know if it's because my mother was a child of immigrants, but how things looked, you know, how it would look, what the neighbors would say. There was an emphasis on not creating drama, certainly not creating scandal. Um, my father was in the news industry, so he provided enough drama and scandal, you know, with the stories that he would come home with. Now, I'm a middle kid. I often say I'm a middle kid from the middle class living in middle America. And, all, you know, I've got five brothers and sisters. We were all raised the same. But for some reason, I'm the kind of kid who was always addicted to approval, it was always important to me that I was not only looking good, and I don't mean, you know, cosmetically. I mean being in, being in the right, being on the right side of things. So that was important. And also, I mean, right, you know, being right. So 
this addiction to approval um, led me to be the kind of kid who was always about you. You know, what was going on with you? What did you want? Um, Where did you want to go? Are you all right? Are you feeling okay? What can I do to make you happy, you know? What can I do to make things right? That was never taught to me. Uh, But it's just something that I, on my own, I think picked up along the way. And it, it worked. I got along with people. I liked a lot of people. I think people liked me. But I don't know that I really had a sense of who I was, a sense of what was important to me, what I liked, what I wanted to do, who was the woman that I was being invited to be. I had no sense of that. Of course, I was also in the fourth grade, so who the hell knows? (laughs) But sprinkle that, as I often say, with over 16 years of being educated by nuns who they were really good nuns, but they were always about putting yourself last and sacrifice and suffering. How suffering was so important. It had to be silent or it didn't count. You know, in in the shaping of who you were. And, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, Dr. Bob, one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, one time said that he believed that the whole 12-step program could be sifted down to two words, love and service. It's about love and service. I have found that to be true. But I think also in their own way, that's what was being taught to me as a kid. But, you know, I was a kid. What I did know is that I was always attracted to those kids who broke the rules because I was not a rule breaker. I would just get up to the edge, you know, just until I almost broke it, and then I'd back off because God knows I didn't want to get in trouble. But I just admired those kids who really didn't care what you thought of them, who ate meat on Friday, who just... (laughs) So it's no surprise uh, that when I met my husband, he was just the kind of guy that would grab my attention. Now, at the time, I'm going out with this nice guy from Indianapolis, just this nice Indiana guy who used to send me flowers during school. I mean, I went, uh, I went to school in Cincinnati, but I dormed there. And he would send me flowers for no reason whatsoever with a little note that would say, Happy Wednesday. <laughs> well, it was nice, but I used to think, what? And so uh, when, when he was gone back to Indianapolis for a summer, uh, a gal that I knew called me and said, hey, my brother's coming to town. He's, um, he's down in Meridian, Mississippi. He's, uh, he's in training. He's a Marine Corps pilot. And I've fixed him up with everybody. I find any more people to go out with him. Would you, would you consider going out with him? Well, I mean, this was, of course, during the Vietnam era. And I thought, well, of course I will. What else? I mean, it's summer. So, you know, tans back in Indianapolis. Of course I'll go out with your brother. So here I am. He comes to the door to pick me up, and he's got this monogrammed, silver cup, you know, filled up to the top with bourbon. 
And I just thought, he's got one of those jackets on, one of those Marine Corps jackets that's got this seal on the sleeve that says the Marine Corps, one good deal after another. I mean, he was just so different from anybody that I had ever met. He was just so full of himself and cocky, dangerous. I mean, I often say to people, you know, here you are with these two men, one who's sending you flowers during the middle of the week for no reason, and the other who takes you to Coney Island, buys a ticket to the Ferris wheel, and tries to tip you out of the top, you know, cart when you're at the top of that. So who do you pick, you know? I just thought the Ferris wheel guy was going to be kind of fun. So that's what I went with. I went with the Ferris wheel guy. And it was fun for a while. But then it wasn't, you know? And then it wasn't. One time he came into town and... um, I know I was teaching school in Chicago. I was out of school. He was still, I don't know where he was, in Beeville, one of those Marine Corps bases. And we both got to Cincinnati at the same time, and he wanted to rent a plane a little uh, from down at Lunkin Airport and um, go up for a for a war. So I get into the, I mean, can you imagine how excited I was? So I get in this little plane with this guy, and we take off of Lunkin, and we're flying over the Ohio River, and he turns to me and he says, do you know what a stall is? And I'm like, no, I've never even been in a plane before. So, of course, he stalls the airplane, and the next thing I know, we're heading for the Ohio River, and at the last minute, he pulls it out. So when I got home, I mean, I said to his sister, oh, my God, I think I'm in love. (laughs) She said, that's not love, that's fear. But... Whatever it was, I mean, we, you know, this this went on, and eventually, um, at Christmas time, we, um, I was invited to have dinner. He comes from a big family, and I was invited to have Christmas dinner at his home, and we were sitting around the Christmas table, and he said to his family, I have an announcement to make, and <clears throat> we were all wondering what he was going to say, and he announced that we were going to get married. Now, I did not know that. But this is what's important. When I was 21 years old, 22 years old, I was the kind who would not, I did not have enough of me to say, we need to talk about that. I mean, that's, you know, that this may happen, but I don't know that it's going to happen soon. We need to talk to my family. I'm teaching, you know, I'm under contract at, with a little school in Chicago hold up, you know, let's put the brakes on. I don't have that at 22. This is what I do. Okay, all right, all right. This this will be great. This will just be great. And the reason that I tell the story is because that dodging responsibility is something that I could and would do. So if you make the big decisions in my life and it all blows up in my face... It's not me, it's you. And if there's anything that Al-Anon continues to help me with, it's that taking responsibility. There is a little sticker that some people have on the inside of their windshield, and it says, it's not them. And that's what Al-Anon helps to remind. You know, we say, 
We have got to keep the focus on us. I'm responsible for me. I'm responsible not only for the decisions that I make. I'm responsible for my own recovery. And sometimes, you know, I've got to go out of my comfort zone. I had to leave my home group of over 25 years, not because there was anything wrong with it, but it's just that as I get older, night meetings are not so great for me. I'm falling asleep, blah, blah, blah. So about six years ago, I called my friend again, and I said, Sue, I'm going to start a new meeting, and I'm going to make it in the morning. Do you want to... You know, do you want to be a piece of this? I mean, do you want to help get this thing going? And she's like, sure. And then we called Debbie, and, you know, I called other people. And I'd heard, I'd been to enough open AA meetings that I would hear that in order to, you know, all you need to start a meeting is a resentment in a coffee pot. Well, I didn't really have a resentment, but I knew that I needed a new kind of meeting because I was flagging. I was flagging. And I and so you know, six years ago, a group of us started this new Wednesday. It's going great guns, and then another meeting has spun off as a result of that, and another meeting has spun off as a result of that. And I only say that because it's just like this convention: if we are not responsible, then then who then who will be? I want to make sure that Al-Anon is around when kids or grandkids or whoever needs and wants it, you know, that it's still here. And that means, you know, it really means for me stepping up to the plate and be. So, um, so we, we got married in January. I got pregnant in February. He got his orders to go to Vietnam in March, and then he's gone. And um, <clears throat> I knew 10 days into my marriage that I was in over my head. I knew it. But <clears throat> how would that look if I went home after 10 days? It would not look well. It wouldn't look good. Now, my oldest sister would probably, she would have been so stressed out, she would have probably had to have been hospitalized, to be honest. My next older sister would probably have just very quietly one morning locked the door to that trailer where we were living in Havelock, North Carolina, snuck out, and then, you know, when he wasn't looking. I mean, that. But me, I pretend. I pretend like everything is okay. It's okay. It's all right. I couldn't wait for him to go to Vietnam because I thought if I could just have some time, I'll be able to figure this out. I'll be able to figure this out. So off he goes to Vietnam, comes back, decides to go, use the GI Bill to go to graduate school um, at Ohio State to become a dentist. And <clears throat> before he left for, before we left for Ohio State, he was in a horrific bar fight here in Kentucky. <laughs> because here in Kentucky, some of the bars like to use brass knuckles if you're acting up. And that's what happened to him. So he had to have this eye surgery before he could start dental school at Ohio State, and then there was no drinking. I thought it was because I had been patient, long-suffering, hadn't nagged, had suffered silently. It was all my doing. It was all my doing. I always had this sense that I could fix this. I could fix this. I would say to friends, 
in the rough. And I know if I just rub him the right way and smooth off those edges, everything will be fine. And when it wasn't, I do, other than just pretend it's okay. So it wasn't long uh, before, of course, um, the drinking, you know, he, the drinking returned. Uh, and now we have a new complication because now that's for narcotics. And so that's the next thing that happened. And then he's thrown out of dentistry employment. And <clears throat> I can tell you as a mother, we had a house full of kids by then, um, unemployment can be terrifying when you don't know how you are going to feed your kids, where that meal next to them from. We, by the grace of his parents, were going to pay that they owned. We couldn't even pay the utility. It was just, I was just always frantic. I was just always frantic. But what I did was put on this face that everything was just the way I had always hoped it would be. Because what would you think of me if you knew what I was left? What would you think of me as a wife? What would you think of me? And so I just pretended. And I, I acted as if everything was just falling right into place. And for that I was grateful because at least... We weren't in a neighborhood. At least I could keep prying eyes at bay. But unfortunately, just like, you know, every place, you know, there's the encroaching suburbs. So now we've got these subdivisions that are moving in around this, what had become pretty much a family compound. And my husband comes from a long line of uh, hunters. And so I started to get um, phone calls. Because, you know, he's unemployed, but what he started to do was to trap fox and sell their furs. Now, I like to say to people, fur trapping was a lucrative profession <laughs> back in the 1700s, but in the 1980s, it doesn't bring in a lot of, doesn't bring in a steady flow of cash. But, oh, I made it sound like it was great, and he had a garden going, and he was raising bees, and he's making jams and jellies and giving them away. I mean, I made it sound like I was married to the in the world. But now I got these, the Stepford wives, I used to call them. These, uh, these women are calling me, and they're wondering if I've seen their cats. And I'm like, oh, my God, I love cats. So I go to him, and I say, Rick, you're not shooting cats, are you? Because I know now he has these infrared glasses, and he's hunting at night. And he said to me, not the skinny ones. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he goes, no, not the skinny ones, because they, they, they have to hunt in order to survive. But the fat ones are killing our pheasant and quail for sport, and they have to go. So what happens to me is what I think happens to so many of us. Bit by bit by bit, in order to live with it, I have to adopt it. And so I become just as crazy as he because I don't know how else I can live with it. So I think to myself, well, that's oh, Those fat cats... They're killing our pheasant and our quail. 
I couldn't tell you the difference between a pheasant and quail if my life depended on it. That all of a sudden, I'm their protector. But, you know, and then eventually, I don't even want to answer the phone. I don't even want to answer the phone anymore because it's too stressful. And so that, you know, that, that what happened to me then was, you know, I become more and more isolated because it's just too much trouble to present this glowing, this glowing picture to you and to have to explain and defend. And, and so I just don't want to answer the phone, and I just want you to go away. And I resent the schools who keep sending home every September these forms I have to fill out about, you know, jobs and profession. And I, I just, you know, get very angry and resentful. It's none of their business. And I'm just, I'm just losing it, you know, it really is. And we say in our reading we become, you know, we become unreasonable without knowing it. I became unreasonable, and, and I knew it. I knew I was becoming unreasonable. And so uh, bewildered is the, only, is the only word, the best adjective, and we have it in our literature. I did not know what to do to fix it, but I was sure that I was the one that should be able to fix it. I was the one that should be able to find that combination of words, that right action to straighten this whole mess out. So very quickly, <clears throat> somewhere on that driveway, you know, my husband had five sisters, and um, one joined AA. Um, actually, she went to Allen on first, and they could have scooted her across the across the across the hallway to the other meeting, and then another sister joined. Before I know it, I've got four sister-in-laws. I used to call it Alcoholics Unanimous, but you know, there they all were, and and I could see. I could see that their lives were changing. I could see that these gals were happy. And to this day, I mean 30-some years later, they are still very happy and productive members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so, you know, they would drop as new, you know, as, as newly sober people sometimes do. Well, we all do it, I think. You know, we, we say we, we, it's traction rather than promotion. But sometimes when you're new, you're just so excited, you just promote, 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 promote. So they kept talking about alcoholism being a family disease and being in their families for a long, long time. And I thought to myself, oh, my God. I'm pregnant with child number seven, and I had always had what I called this eight-year plan because Rick was four years older than I was, and in the, this country still, women generally, generally outlive men by about four years. So I always thought at the end of my life I'd have these eight years where I wouldn't have to worry about phone calls, about cats, and about uh, all sorts of things. Kid, people, parents who wouldn't let their kids play at our house because he had leg hold traps. Or, I mean, it was just like, oh, my God, if this is a family disease, I will. there goes my eight-year plan. So um, I, I went to um, a beginner's meeting. I went to a beginner's meeting. I went to a meeting that was very far out in the country because I did not want anybody to know that I that – I, that I was at a loss, that I didn't have the answer. And so I went out to this meeting, and, and this woman said to me, her name was Ruth, and she said, I said to her, Ruth, I don't know if my husband's honest. And she said, well, has his drinking ever been a problem? I said, well, <laughs> every time he drinks, it's a problem because somebody gets hurt. 
And she said, well, then you're in the right place. Because Al-Anon is a program. And I say to people, that's what I heard on the of April the 5th, 1980, that this was a program for me. And I, because of you, have never lost sight of that. I have never lost sight of that. This is a program for me so that I can recover from the family disease of autism. And so, you know, it's where I first heard, you know, alcoholism is a disease. I can't cure, I can't control, and I didn't cause. Never thought I caused it. Always thought I should be able to control it or at least cure it. And I have some friends that add a fourth C, don't want to contribute. And so from that very first night, I really fell in love with you. I absolutely fell in love with Al-Anon. There was not one thing that I heard or hear in healthy meetings that conflicts with anything, any values with which I have been raised. There is no conflict. It fits in seamlessly with everything that I believe to be and right. And what, what a testament to this program that, that that can be so, that that can be so. So, um, you know, you're the ones, you know, things began to change really very quickly in that home because of what you taught me. You taught me that my husband was not a bad guy. He was a sick guy. You taught me that I would never get better unless I could, unless I could admit to the sickness in myself. You know, beginners, it's, I was just thinking this the other days ago, and there were a lot of beginners. And the pain around that table, you could, it's palpable, palpable, whatever that word is. You can touch it. The pain, at, and yet, when you work, when you do a beginner's meeting, it's an odd place to be. And yet, you're also holding that great amounting that this program, you know, you're, I, I always feel like I'm at the crossroads. And this one newcomer said he had given, you know, done what we do in beginner's meeting. She turned to me and she said, you know, me, like you're saying, you can't keep my son alive. But if he dies, you'll be pretty much what we're saying. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, well, you know, what, what we do here, we, we admit, you know, that we, we're powerless. Having said that, <clears throat> We also don't believe that we, we are in a passive program. We may be powerless, but as we read all the time, we're not helpless. But So I'm here, and you're telling me, you know, in our literature, there's this wonderful quote that I use often. It's a Thomas Merton quote, and it says, and it's, I believe, in our One Day at a Time book, the beginning of love is to allow those we love. And that's what Al-Anon invites. Because I had spent years waiting for somebody to be different. I had spent years taking all those red flags and painting them green. And you are telling me that there is a way to just be with someone where they are. Now, we don't give advice 
And really, my only, I will, I will give you advice here. If you're going to meetings where they're giving advice, I would suggest you find a new meeting. But that's <clears throat> uh, just an opinion. Anyway, I, uh, having said that, that doesn't mean that I have to stay married to that person, that I have to work for that person, that I have to live with that person. That doesn't mean that. But what I hear when I hear that is Al-Anon invites me to be with people and to accept them where they are without judging, shaming, criticism. That's not easy. I mean, that's not easy to do. You know, I, I, we've got, I've got a friend that always says, I have to keep going to a lot of meetings because I leak. I leak. I can't hold on to this wisdom and practice it all the time unless I'm being sponsored, unless I'm going to meetings, unless I'm reading the literature. One time at this uh, meeting that I used to go to, a very home group, um, <clears throat> half the meeting was over and this older woman walked in and um, she, I could tell she didn't know if she was in the right place, so I kind of like, um, you know, put my hand out, like sit in this empty chair next to me, and she came and sat next to me. And after the meeting, she said to me, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I'm in the race. And I said, why, why do you say that? And she said, because my son drinks uncontrollably, but he's 59 years old. And I said, well, you know, all of us are here, loved one. It doesn't matter their age. And she said, well, how long have you been coming here? And I said, well, I've been coming here, for, I, I, I've been here for, I don't know, like 24 years. And she said, don't get it, honey? <laughs> I was going to say, no, it's just that I leak. But my age, that doesn't sound very good. So anyway. <clears throat> so here I am. And... <clears throat> of, um, you know, with this idea of letting go and letting God. This idea of just paying attention to what is my responsibility and what is not my responsibility. There is such a freedom in not having to pretend. That's one of the gifts for me of being in Al-Anon is because I'm with men and women, as we say, who know as too few, you understand. I don't have to explain. I don't have to defend. I don't have to look good. I don't have to be right. I can just be with you and you, under, and you get it. I shared at my home group on Wednesday. Um, on Monday at one of my workout classes, a guy who bought my house where I raised all my kids, uh, he came over and uh, wanted to, you know, somebody said, where do you want us to set up your mat? He said, set it right up next to Kathy. And I thought, oh, no, don't set it up next to me. But he did. They did. And so he came to me and he said, my wife at kitchen. He said, no, we're not tearing anything down. We're just, we're just uh, you know, making some doorways bigger. But we pulled out, and guess what we found? And, you know, years ago, I would have thought, oh, holy mother of God. It's going to be, of course, it's going to be something illegal, but what did I have to find? So I said, oh, what'd you find? He said, we found old pot holders. I was like, oh, pot holders? That's great! I've never been more proud of my children. Oh, pot holders, that's great! 
But what I was sharing just this past week is it didn't really matter to me what he found because I'm just so used to being with people who just, it's just the way that it all is. That's all. And so that freedom not have to, to not have to pretend, to not have to pretend anymore, to just be okay with the truth, to not feel responsible. Like I was a terrible mother. I really was just an average mother. And that's okay because you've taught me that it's okay. You taught me that it's okay. So here I am with you, and I just really stay. I just can't get enough of what you're willing to share with me. That wisdom, you know, that wisdom of the group, it's just become so important to me. I go to meetings with people. Um, we all, I mean, we have, a, we have a good time, but we also recognize that there is, with this disease, a, a fair amount of grief because we love people who have who are, who are dying and that's not easy it's just not easy so my sponsor will say to me when i've had to show up in a court of law with sons who were handcuffed and shackled there's no inoculation but the good news is I've never had to go through that alone. I've never had to go through that alone. But it's not helpful to me when somebody will say, ha, 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 they're just busy writing their lead. Ha, ha, ha. That doesn't help me because it ignores a berry. It ignores an important piece of my heart. What's helpful to me is when you share with me that it's also a struggle for days when you don't know where your child But thank God we can pick up the phone and thank God we can come together and hold hands and say a serenity prayer together. Thank God I go to meetings with women who have buried their children as a result of this disease, who don't know where their children are as a result of this disease, who have not seen their children for years as a result of this disease, and yet they still show up and lead lives of service and love and grace and dignity. Thank God for that. So you are the ones that have always taught me the importance of really turning my life and will, that I do not have to figure it all out, that there is a partnership there that I can detach. I mean, when I first came in, they didn't say detach. They called it releasing with love. You know, detachment is neither kind nor unkind. It just means that I am not willing to get caught up in someone else's consequences. But, I, you know, there's a little sticker I saw once at an Al-Anon. What does it say? Oh, it says, it says detach, don't amputate. And, you know... <laughs> I always thought that was clever, you know? I mean, just like all these new things that I hear, like, wait, you know, why am I talking? Then I go to a meeting and somebody says, well, I like whale better. And I'm like, well, what's whale? Why am I listening? I mean, I <laughs> all these little things that plug up the leaks in my system and that, you know, one day at a time allow me to continue on to lead the kind of life that I believe to lead. So um, I, you know, I, I just, 
came around and and I could see from your example the importance of getting a sponsor and of doing a fourth step, of looking the four M's that we call in in, uh, Al-Anon, managing, martyrdom, manipulation, mothering. Somebody in one of my home groups, in my one home group said, I hate that they say mothering, like that's a negative. Well, they should change that to smothering, which is which I understand, but anyway, to, to, you know, for 12 and a half years before I found you, I'm looking at somebody else asking the wrong questions. What is wrong with him? Why would he do that? Why would he say that? Never once asking those questions. And it wasn't until I got to Al-Anon and, and became, um, became acquainted with you who demanded that the focus stay on me, that I could begin to ask questions, that I could begin to open up that arse of mass destruction, that homage. And so, you know, because of that, you allowed me, you know, the courage to share the exact, the exact nature of my, with the God of my understanding. And that's really when I learned that I'm enough. I'm enough that we are all enough for today. We are just enough for the day. I don't have to try to get good. I wouldn't even know how to try to get good. I can simply, I can simply um, work in a partnership with a power greater than myself. The wisdom of the group is so important for me today. The wisdom in my Al-Anon groups is, is just critical. So... Um, you know, I I find I had to make an amends to my husband. I had to change my behavior. It got to the point where he would say, "Do you know it's ten of eight and your meeting starts at eight o'clock? You're going to be late. Get out of here. You're going to be late." I mean, that's how much I had changed. That he was encouraging me not only to get to a meeting but get to a meeting on time. I was not in Al-Anon three years before my husband in a helicopter crash. But I am so grateful for a number of things. First of all, that I was able to make a verbal amends to him. Secondly, that I was on my way of really changing my behavior in that relationship with him. And um, <clears throat> and, and the, I guess mostly is the, the last thing that I said to him as he was walking out the door to fly that, that crazy helicopter he'd built himself was... You, wow, you have a beautiful day to fly. Have a ball. Those are my last words. How different it might have been without you. How different it might have been. Because I used to resent his flying because I was left at home with all these kids. But you were the ones that said to me, if he finds peace in the sky, why would you want to take that away from him? And that, you know, that made sense. Again, I have to look in, I have to look in myself. But then of course I'm left with these seven kids under the age of under the age of under the age of how old were those kids? They were all under the age of uh, 14. And they some of them, you know, had already were getting into a little bit of trouble and then eventually some of them got into big trouble. But this is what, you know, without giving me advice You'd show up at meetings, you'd talk to me on the phone, you would remind me that I was not my children's higher power. And if I tried to be, they would never find a higher power on their own. 
You are the ones that taught me never, oh my God, never to take my kids personal. That was so important. And you know, something that happened to me, and I share it all the time, shortly after my husband was killed, I took the kids to a grief counselor, and we were all crammed into his office, and they were just being horrible. They're pinching each other, and he gave some crayons, and they're melting the crayons on his radiator. They were just awful. So he threw them out, and uh, we put them in the waiting room, and I turned to him, and I said, I don't think I can raise these kids by myself. And he said, oh, you, you can't. You're understaffed. And that was the best piece. That was, you know, it's like somebody hit me in the head, and I thought, that's right. I'm understaffed. So much of my life has been a partnership that I have learned in this program because you're the ones that have made me entirely ready to have God remove these defectors. You're the ones that through showing up and sharing your experience and your strength and your hope have taught me about the importance of living with a poverty of spirit that tells me I cannot do it alone. I have to humbly ask God to step in for me, with me and together, and together, one day at a time, we will get through this. And that's really, that has been, that's been my experience. I don't know what I would have done, and I still don't know what I would do without, without this program. You are the ones that told me the most powerful amends I could make to my kids was to give them a healthy parent. And I still believe the importance of doing that. Even though today they're grown children, I am still there trying to give them a healthy parent. And I've got kids who have been in the program. I've got a couple who are still in, and I've got a couple who are, who are no longer in. You taught me that wonderful phrase, you could be right. You could be right. I don't have their answers. I cannot make my kids want what I want for them. I can't. And so, you know, the two had been in AA and were doing well and got out for various reasons. One said, I was just brainwashed. I was brainwashed by you and the ants. They love to call them the ants. You know, it's like the gang of four. The ants. And so instead of arguing, which would have been my old way of trying to be the keeper of truth and justice, I just simply say, no, you could be right. I don't know. You could write. I have another one that periodically asks me for numbers. And that is one thing that I always have available for my kids. I've got names and phone numbers for them. Um, I have a daughter in Chicago who I just talked to before I came here today. She called me one night and she said, Mom, i got to quit drinking. And I said, well, what do you want to do? I mean, you can call AA Chicago or I can call somebody and get a number for you. She said, why don't you call and get a number for me? So I called a fellow that I know that knows a lot of people around the country, and he gave me this guy's name in Chicago. I mean, he gave me his cell phone, his home phone, his office number, and his fax number. So I called my daughter in Chicago, and I said, here's this guy. Here are the numbers. You know, make, make the call. That's what you want to do. And that guy in Chicago had her at a meeting the next day 
and she will celebrate, she celebrates 15 years this month. <clears throat> now again, that's got nothing to do with me, but I did have a number, and I have another kid who, you know, has called for numbers, and then he never makes the phone call. But he called me a few months ago, and he said, Mom, do you still have those numbers? I wanted to say, are you kidding, you idiot? I have them tattooed on my chest. Yes, I've got <laughs> Now, what he does with that, I, I don't know. Because, you see, you've taught me an AA. I mean, an AA. In Allen, on the three A's. Awareness, acceptance, action. This is not a passive program. I can take action. But I have just got to be willing to let adults. That's the deal. This program, I say, I believe it is rooted in a spirituality of letting go. Because day after day, time after time, I just simply, if I want to lead a life of serenity and peace, I have to be willing to let go. I just have to be willing to let go. My sponsor always says, let God sort it out. And I tend to believe her. So, um, you know, I'm not going to go much longer, but I just, you know, for me, um, over the years and still to this day, daily inventories are critical. They're just critical. To pay attention to my actions, um, you know, what is what am I doing today that reminds me of the woman that I be? And what am I not doing today? What continues to block me? I have to pay attention to that. I have to because I want to lead a life that is intentional. And, you know, prayer and meditation, I, I say it all the time. I believe that we are invited in to an intimate relationship with myself. And that involves carving out quality time for prayer and meditation. Otherwise, I would never be able to take the stuff of life and spin it into gold. I, I, I couldn't do it. Not without that. It's just, it's just important. Um, and lastly, you know, um, <clears throat> practicing the principles. This is my latest rant. I, you know, I, we say it at every meeting. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person that gave them. Take what you like. Leave the rest. We're talking about opinions. We're not talking about the principles of the program. The principles of the program are, I believe, love and service, and they're not negotiable. What it allows me to do, however, it gives me the freedom when I spend time looking at who I am, looking at those inventories of what works and what doesn't work, deciding how I best can be of service, not only in Al-Anon, but to the world. Al-Anon is not my whole life, but it invites me to lead a life that is whole, and that's important for me. And so whatever it may be as a way of service, I believe sometimes showing up at a meeting when you'd really rather not be there, that's service. Thank God for those women that showed up on that crummy, rainy night of April the 5th. It was a lousy night. But there you were, and you were smiling, and you were welcoming, and you said, keep coming back. What a service that was that night. So um, 
I don't know what else I want to say. I really don't want to say anything else to tell you the truth. I just think I, sometimes if I'm at a convention and somebody's been going on and on and on and we're all so damn tired, and the, they'll say, well, I, I'm going to end now because I've been talking too long, and somebody in the audience will say, no, no, keep going. I want to jump up and say, no, no, shut up. I mean... <laughs> We're tired. We got other stuff going on here. You, you've been good, but sit down now. So I am, but I'm going to close with this last final thing. Oh, for God's sakes. I just want to, oh, for God's sakes. I just want to say something really, really fast. So I'm raising all these kids by myself. Happy as can be. Great. I'm a great widow. I was a great widow. Happy as I can be. Come home from teaching school Friday nights, paint my living room a different color every two weeks. I mean, red, pink. I mean, I just, I'm having a great time. Fixing myself dinners, microwave popcorn and juji fruits. I mean, it's great. And I get a letter, a little note from darling Mr. Wonderful from Indianapolis. I know. Now, I mean, I always kind of knew where he was because we had so many mutual friends. Um, but anyway, he had moved. He had been living in California. He had moved back to Indianapolis to take care of aging parents. Both of his parents had now passed on. He wrote me a little note and said, Hey, I don't know if you're still in Cincinnati. I don't know if you're still at this address. I don't know what you're doing. But we've always gotten along so well. What about if we just met periodically for dinner? So I look at this little note, and I think, oh, no, I'm so happy the way things are. <laughs> but then I think, you know, you, I believe in being open. I don't know what the will of God is for me every day, but I'm willing to explore things. So I answer him and say, you know what, if you're in Indianapolis, I'm in Cincinnati. Sure, we could meet in Batesville. That we'll meet for dinner. That'll be fine. But I'm really very busy. So um, <clears throat> so we have dinner, and you know what? We had a great time. Of course we had a great time. We always had a great time. We have a wonderful time. That was in 98. So to make a very, very long story, very short, 2005, when my last kid graduated from college, Mr. Indianapolis and I got married, and you know what was the best about it? Is that at our wedding, were our, were, he's, also, he's also, of course, he's also got 27 years sober in AA. Um, <laughs> he tricked me with the flowers, but anyway. <laughs> Never been married, no kids, that's what I call a double winner. And... <laughs> um, And I, I got to say, I, it's just been great. I mean, people are like, oh, it must be a storybook. And I think, well, you know what? It, it's just, it just works so well. That's all I can tell you. It just works so very well. But it wouldn't have one day before it did. It wouldn't have. People would say to me back in 85, oh, you'll meet somebody that can help you raise your kids. And I'd say, let's hope not. I mean, we'd still be finding buried body parts. My kids were not easy. It just worked. You know, the plan unfolds when the plan unfolds. That's all I know. So this is the story I am going to close with. All my kids, as a result of their father's service in the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War, 
all of them were given scholarships to any state school in the state of Ohio. They're known as war orphans. Free tuition, free fees, and all they had to do was work for their room and board. Every kid, free ride to college as a result of their father's service. So, um, yeah, it's the truth. So um, one kid didn't take it because she won a scholarship to St. Louis University. So um, we all go over to St. Louis University to see her graduate, and the woman that was giving the commencement speaker was running late, and uh, she got there. All the parents are waiting. You know, we're all waiting in the little chapel at St. Louis University. She arrives, and she says, sorry, 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 I'm so late. But I, my little seven-year-old just learned the Lord's Prayer, and he wanted to recite it for me before I came, so I had to listen to it. And she said, he stood before me and he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, how'd you know my name? <laughs> and I heard that, and I still usually close with that, because if, if I could nail, if I could just say, this is what Al-Anon has meant to me, it would be that one more time I have been reintroduced to a God who certainly knows my name, and for that I'm grateful. Thank you.